This is Abrupt Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. Each week, we feature conversations with experts in leadership, management, human resources, culture, and technology to help you succeed in this new normal. This is your host, Benoit Ardivalet. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Abrupt Future. Our two guests are Diana Rivera and Joshua Zakaria, respectively senior economists and economists at the Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. So today we talk with the two authors of a new research report on how Canada's labor market could evolve by 2030. First of all, Diana and Joshua, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. So Diana, Joshua, what was the, the context, the driver, what led you to engage in that research report? And also, was there something missing in the current literature on the future of work and the future of occupation, right? Because this is something that generates a lot of buzz and interest in the last few years. So what was the intent on, on adding a new piece of research in this exciting area? There were three main things that drove us to explore this project, um, really explore what uh, what employment might look like in 2030. Um First of all, the rapid change that we are seeing in various areas um, of the labor market. Uh, you know, we, we keep hearing about how skills might be changing, um, how policymakers and workers need insights about where growth or decline might occur. Um, second, we we really saw the willingness of different actors, so from government to employers to service providers to other researchers to do something about it, but also the really um, evident need for guidance and research that is specific to Canada. So around skills, around the labor market and the future of employment, we often see a lot happening, uh, mostly in the U.S., um, but, you know, as com- comparable as it is sometimes, it is not, it is It is obviously not all, always one for one. So we, we really wanted to um, create something that was specific to the Canadian context. And third, uh, we also felt the need to highlight the breadth of changes that we are seeing. So um, kind of related to the first item, uh, we are seeing all these changes and technology, technological changes um, and automation are, is something that uh, comes up quite often and is a very important driver um, for these shifts. But it is also not the only thing that's changing things. Uh, and we can get into uh, a little bit more of what other things are changing. But for example, we heard about resource scarcity. We, we heard about um, an aging population and how that might affect the Canadian context. So really, we did this because we saw the post the possibility to gather and share data on the changes that are potentially coming um, and the skills we need in a way that was useful for stakeholders, um, that was specific to Canada, uh, and that looked past, uh, on the first side, traditional forecasting methods, and on the other, also looked past only technological um, potential disruptors. Um, so we, and, and of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention um, the study that inspired this by our partners at Nesta, who did this, who did a version of this in, in the U.S. And in, and in the U.K., um, 
but that methodology really got us thinking about what it might look like to do this in Canada uh, and led us here to today. Fantastic. And I understand that you were, you know, beyond the traditional researching the data and interviewing expert, you were also using some machine learning method to anticipate where those trends could lead us, right? Yeah, I can can comment on that. I think one of the main points of this forecasting method as Diana mentioned, um, we're trying to capture kind of the unexpected. So, so take these trends and then asking these experts, you know, what they what they think about them. And but you can't ask, every, you know, all these experts about every single occupation and how these trends might impact them. So, where the machine learning comes in isn't really necessarily about um, projecting where these trends will go. Where the machine learning comes in is saying, well, what if we could ask the experts about every occupation? Um, what would they say? And so we asked them about a few, which we use the training set. And then based on the skills required for that occupa- for those occupations, the model then says, well, this is what the experts would have said for these others. Fantastic. Now, in a, in a way, you were doing some artificial extrapolation or, or maybe applying a little bit of the future of work on a research for the future of work, one might say. Yeah. <laughs> Now, the the big question, right? So if we look at the next 10 years, how do we see Canadian occupation changing? Which one will increase and which one will will decrease? But let's look first at the proportion of change. And I'm asking that again because there has been a lot of noise, a lot of buzz in the last few years. So, So I would love to hear your key uh, research findings. Yeah, so uh, I, I can take that first part and then um, I think Josh can, can speak a little bit more about uh, the kinds of occupations that, that we're seeing in each of the groups. Uh, but I think one of our most uh, stark findings is that over a third of um, of employed people in Canada are in occupations that are projected to, or, or about a third, are in occupations that are projected to change. Um, so 19% of those are in occupations that are projected to grow. And 15% of those are in occupation, or sorry, 15% of people employed in Canada are in occupations that are that are projected to decline. So we, it, that is a pretty important portion. One of three Canadians um, are in in places where we expect change of some kind. Um, so that that is already a really important signal that we need to be paying attention and we need to be preparing um, for for what these changes might bring and and how they might affect different people. Um, but I, I'll, I'll give it over to Josh to to talk a little bit more about what we see in each of these groups. Yeah. So in the occupations that are projected to increase, um, the main thing we kind of notice is that they all require a certain amount of technical expertise, usually fairly specific technical expertise. And they also seem to require a certain amount of creativity and the ability to help others. We don't see that in every occupation, um, but we see that in a in a large portion of them. And they're often, you know, kind of if they're not highly technical, then they're middle manage, management or middle management. What we see in the occupations projected to decline are a lot of the the workers and laborers in fields such as resource extraction, um, manufacturing, um, and occupations and, and that kind of world. Um, now, that is to say that there are occupations in kind of agriculture and mining and manufacturing that get a growth projection, but they tend to be the more specialized of those of those occupations. For example, um, agricultural contractors 
is an occupation that we give a growth projection to because they tend to be these these specialized uh, people like you know uh, vet you know cat people who are doctors of cows or like people who own their own agricultural businesses um, is is an occupational category in, in Canada that kind of lumps a bunch of these together and, and they get a growth projection. And I think it's really important uh, just just to jump in there. I think it's really important to realize that when we're talking about decline or growth, um, something that we thought really important was to talk about share. So we're not necessarily saying you know these jobs are going to decrease in the number of opportunities that are available or people are going to be losing their jobs. Um, What we're saying here is really about um, is really relative. So will the will this occupation employ uh, kind of a bigger slice of the pie of Canadian employment uh, in 10 years, whether that pie grows or not? So it, you know, even if we say an occupation might be uh, might be projected to decline. The number of jobs there might very well grow. It'll just be slightly. Um, it'll just be relatively less important compared to other occupations. Um, so, so that is also something to keep in mind as we keep talking about what what occupations are in here, um, and as we as we continue this conversation. No, it's an, and it's an important point because most of the other reports were often talking about jobs, hence the workers. And then we have these catastrophic pictures of people out of work because technology is taking over. And what you're what you're seeing actually is that the occupation might shift. It doesn't mean that the people in these roles will will necessarily be out of the workforce necessarily. Exactly. Um, and I think something that's also important in these discussions is that each occupation includes, um, you know, it, it sounds fairly specific, but each occupation includes so many job titles. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that may very well have different descriptions. So I, I, I really like what you said about an occupation shifting. So maybe those job titles within it, maybe those responsibilities also shift. Um, and that relative importance with the rest of the Canadian employment shift. But, you know, saying, for example, that an occupation is going to completely disappear, um, it would actually be very hard for all of these jobs that are included in each occupation to completely disappear. Um, it's it's really more about the shifts within it. And we uh, talked about the, the type of job that we see growing, right? So the one where there's technical knowledge required, they're about helping others. What was the list of the broad foundational skills that regardless of the occupation, we will see as critical for that next uh, decade? So we find uh, five foundational skills. And uh, just to start, I want to kind of specify what we mean by that. And so our model at its core is based around these skills required for an occupation. Um, so we, so for example, if um, when we were looking at kind of does agriculture grow, does or, or does construction, all these things, we're, we're not looking at um, these industry trends. We're really just looking at what are the skills required for this job. So one of the main outputs then is um, when the model's looking at all of this, these skill requirements, uh, what skills get rewarded and what skills don't, depending on what it's seen already. And what we tried to find were a list of skills that no matter what else was required for this job, no matter what else the model knew about this job, were always helpful. And I put helpful in kind of these quotation marks, but always made the model think that this was more likely to grow an employment share. And we really only find five 
skills that fit this profile. Most skills um, are better in combination with others and aren't always helpful. They're helpful only if you have something else. Like, for example, um, you know, knowledge of marketing is helpful, I think, off the top of my head, 60% of the time. But if you also, if the occupation also requires creativity, then it's helpful 98% of the time. So the five we find that are always helpful are memorization, um, fluency of ideas, which is kind of a, you know, also means brainstorming. Instruction, so your ability to teach others. Persuasion, your ability to persuade others. And service orientation, which is the ability to find ways to help others. So the first thing to note about these skills is that three of them, the last three I mentioned, are social skills. And this is something that we have seen in other places in the literature. It's been part of discussions for, for some time that we live in, a, in an increasingly collaborative world. And maybe actually, in fact, this has always been true and we're just kind of finding it in more technical way, ways now, but that these social skills are really important for success in any field, in any uh, occupation. And and you, can, you really can't imagine uh, someone being successful in a field without a certain amount of persuasion, instruction, and service orientation, especially if they were to go into middle to upper management. You, you would need that kind of team player uh, sort of skill base. And then the other two we think are quite interesting because they represent um, two sides of this longstanding debate in education. Should we be teaching our kids creativity and thinking outside of the box, or should we be focusing on information recall? And one thing that I think is important about what our model has pointed out, that you don't need to pick one or the other, that you need both. Um, so information recall or, or memorization is, you know, like all these technical occupations that receive this high, this high growth projection or this high uh, portion of experts who would say growth are occupations like nurses who you can't imagine a nurse being successful at their job without a decent amount of information recall. And even a lot of the occupations that often got, get brought up as being these, these occupations where, oh, you can just look it up, like a, a computer programmer, for example. Um, it's still hard. You need to know what you're going to look up. You can't just be constantly Googling as you're, as you're writing code. You're doing a certain amount of that for sure. But you need to know how to build this query. You need to know what is possible. You need to know kind of these general algorithms and things. Um, uh, so, so memorization plays an important role, but so does obviously being able to think outside of the box, being able to think on your feet, come up with new ideas quickly. So I think it's quite interesting that the model points out both of these being important abilities. Yeah, I, I would say that was a, was a very interesting finding in the sense that it's, especially for memorization, it's not the one that you hear a lot or that people think first when they think about the future, maybe because we take it for granted, you know, if you're a knowledge worker anyway, you spend your time absorbing information is becoming second nature. You don't realize it could be actually a skills and you might have people that are better at it than others and there might be a way of, of uh, developing it. And that could become a, a, a success factor for somebody in a in a specific role. So and on the other hand, I'm thinking also, well, if you want to be creative, if you want to have fluency in your ideas, you still need some raw matters, right? You need some ideas, you need some frames of reference to trigger your imagination. So from a purely cognitive point of view, I see how one leads to the other or one supports the other. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. And and one thing that I, I think is interesting about what you said is 
that in some ways the, the mem memorization being important is the model's proxy for identifying a knowledge occupation. And, and I think there's, there's truth in that. I think that is partially what it was doing. The thing uh, also that I found very interesting about these um, foundational skills and abilities that we found was the fact that, yes, we we found that they were almost vital for for an occupation to be projected to grow. But we also found that they're already pretty important, um, which is part of the reason that we call them foundational. So we, we already see these as pretty important across the labor market. Um, and that is just going to grow if, um, you know, if, if, if we, if certain of the trends that we've identified continue, continue to um, move forward, that the fact that these are so important is they're just going to become more and more widespread, widespread across sectors, across occupations, um, and more and more important. Just to add to that, um, on that kind of foundational language as well, like uh, Diana just alluded to this, but um, because they are important to lots of occupations, um, what we found them more of an identifier as is it's unlike, highly unlikely that an occupation would get a growth projection if it didn't require these five skills, but it needs to require others as well. Um, so it's having these five isn't a guarantee of that occupation getting a growth projection. And that's kind of this foundational language. You need these five, but then you need to add all of these other things like the particular knowledge areas that you're a part of or, or creativity or, or the, these other various things. So they are almost like, you know, I don't want to say meta skills, but something that clearly enables the, the more local or particular skills that one might need in a specific job. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, they're the, they're the baseline. They're the things that are applicable across the board. And speaking of skills, you were also mentioning complementary skills. Can you explain a little bit what that is? Yes. So I, I touched on it a bit before with my advertising example. Um so when the model is, is not to get into random forests and exactly how they work, but essentially the model is, is looking through each of these skill requirements for an occupation one at a time and, um, you know, making certain decisions based on what it's already seen about, uh, you know, does this, does this mean it's more likely for one of these experts to say growth or does it mean it's less likely? And a complementary skill, the complementary skills are ones in which if I've seen, if the model has seen a skill already, then now, then that's made it more likely that this other skill would mean growth. So the example I used before is in general, like across the board, create uh, advertising, knowledge of advertising is the, the model gives that makes that skill is useful 60% of the time. And what I mean by that is it increases its score when it sees it 60% of the time, the other 40% it decreases the score. But if the model had seen creativity before as a required skill for that occupation, then 98% of the time it makes uh, knowledge and advertising will increase your score. So that what that tells us is that the model thinks knowledge and advertising is useful if this occupation is also a creative occupation. So we, we kind of take that as a proxy for these two skills are useful together. Another example is knowledge of computer and electronics. 
Um, you know, something that we generally think of, or actually even a better one is programming. Um, something that kind of comes up lately as the thing that everyone needs to know. But what we find is that you need to know it if the occupation has these other features as well. Then it's a good occupation. Uh, then it's a good skill to know. But it's not a good, it's not a requ- good skill to, a required skill for everyone to know. Not every occupation gets a growth projection just based on being a programming job. In fact, a lot of the programming jobs don't get growth uh, projections. They, they tend to if they require um, these other things that the model has identified. So we're trying to find the things that, that work well together. So if you're already good at this, then you should also get this. Like an accelerator or an enabler. So, yeah, or, or, or kind of like a, something to already build on. I think the practical, mm-hmm. um, when when we were thinking about, you know, what we found and what, what it would mean for, um, you know, for our audience, for policymakers, for people who are interested in, uh, you know, in preparing workers uh, for the next 10 years, uh, the complementary skills and abilities and, you know, knowledge areas really came up as um, a way to identify, you know, if a certain type of worker, if a certain occupation, if a certain group of people already has this set of skills, all is already really good at X or at Y or at, you know, advertising, then what, um, what would really enhance that into into having a higher chance for growth. So what what other skill could complement that really well in order to build upon that uh, knowledge, that skills base um, and and make this group or the this set of workers uh, a little bit more resilient to to what we're seeing um, based on these projections. So we've seen that so about a third of occupation are expect to uh, to change uh, in one way or another. That these foundational skills, you know, memorization, service orientation, and all that will be critical for the future. How is that changing by categories or demographics, right? Because when we look at an important trend these days, I think not only diversity and inclusion is important, but uh, since the last month, there's an increased awareness and consciousness about inequalities, whether they be gender-based or racially driven, how different demographic will be impacted by these forthcoming transformations? So um, I think, again, I will, I will let Josh uh, look at some of these breakdowns. Um, but I think in in one sentence, we we already see that different workers are facing different projections. They are facing different realities um, on a range of demographic um, and economic variables. So, you know, if you already have a higher income, whether you identify um as uh, with a particular uh, racial group um, or whether you are an indigenous person. So we, we see these differences fairly clearly. Um, now we are using, we're kind of extending the, our, our projections to the current data, to, to the latest census data. And we're seeing, well, if, if, you know, uh, graphic designers and all of these other occupations are projected to grow, then if we look, if we look at these demographic breakdowns, um, who seems to fare well and who doesn't? Um, and where do we really need to 
to focus uh, our efforts. So it's less of a it's less of a projection about how they're going to fare in the future. It's a snapshot and more of a call to action, I would say, to see where where we should really target our efforts um, based on you know where what occupations people are in um, and a few of the other factors that I also mentioned before. Yeah, so uh, I can kind of briefly take us through um, some of those kind of main demographic breakouts. Uh, So the first is along the lines of sex. Um, Men are uh, much more likely to be in a declining occupation than women and slightly more likely to be uh, in growing occupations than women uh, overall. But then if one looks at more specific industries or, or occupational categories, we find that men can be much more likely to be in a growing occupation. Uh, For example, in the natural science industry, men are 20 percentage points more likely to be in a growing occupation than women. So the the kind of main takeaway from that is that men are projected to experience more risk as well as greater opportunity. Then it's also kind of worth pointing out that, um, you know, kind of if we we take even a, a, a step further in about not just who are getting these occupations, but the quality and pay of these occupations, um, we do find women make less across the board, um, no matter whether it's a growing or a declining or neither occupation. And also, uh, we do find that those in growing occupations make more than those in declining occupations. And women see less of that uh, payoff. So um, a, a man, the, the difference between what a man makes and a woman makes in a growing occupation is higher than the difference in a declining occupation. So, you know, everyone sees this kind of pay bump for being in a growing occupations, but women see much less of one. And, and the takeaway from that is that while women um, are getting some of these growing occupations, uh, they're getting paid less for them. They're getting the, the less well-paid growing occupations. We also find um, kind of somewhat unsurprisingly that uh, these growing occupations tend to require higher education. This doesn't always necessarily mean a bachelor's degree or a postgrad degree, though those degrees do make it much more likely to be in a growing occupation. Um, but, but any education level over high school makes it more likely for one to be in a growing occupation. And we, and we do see a number um, of occupations there that one might have gone to college for. Um, for example, one of our bigger growing occupations are chefs and cooks. And and just kind of specifying the chefs and cooks thing because I love I like that that uh, projection as well and I got a hum from you um, right it, it really fits actually we we get a lot of we get some pushback for that but it really fits kind of what you've seen for the rest of the occupation a highly technical specialized creative occupation that has a that has a huge knowledge base yeah yeah there's so much you need to know to be in that industry um, and the competition is huge. So um, one thing we did as well, which Diana mentioned, is we looked by Indigenous identity. Um, And and one kind of flag here uh, is that we are using the census, which has had historical issues when it comes to uh, Indigenous data. Um, And as a result, um, Indigenous data can be somewhat spotty, but um, there's there's a lot of work kind of in progress to improve that. Um, But even so with this data that is problematic, we do find some pretty... uh, uh, stark differences. Um, as a group, Indigenous peoples are the most likely to be in a declining occupation and the least likely to be in a growing one. Um, so it's, it's a fairly stark result. Um, among Canada's immigrants, 
we find that first-generation immigrants are more likely to be in an occupation projected to grow, but also more likely to be unemployed. Um, so what that tells us is that if they came with a job lined up, uh, that tends to be a fairly good one and tends to be one of our growing occupations. But if they didn't, then it's very hard to find a job. Or if they lose that initial job, then it's hard to find another job. And, that, and that's going to be an important area to, to kind of keep an eye on as uh, all projections are showing that uh, immigrants will make up a growing portion of our workforce over the next day. So all, all that has a lot of implication for society and policy, right? Because, I mean, just for one thing, we should not consider the workforce as a as a whole, but really think about those different categories and, and you know, how to help different groups uh, succeed or reskill or, or upskill. Have you found any critical implication for, for policy out of your research report or some guidance for public decision-making? Tony, you want to take that? Yes, uh, for sure. I think I think one of our principal takeaways here is um, um, a few a few really come to mind. Um, the first is that we need we need something that is flexible. Um, you know, with this and with other work, uh, it it is very clear to us that it, programs that are kind of a one size fits all um, will be problematic because you know not everyone is not everyone is facing the same reality. So um, programs that allow for flexibility that is, um, you know, based on both regional and other demographic factors uh, will be something that is that is key in preparing. Um, you know, even, even when we look at regions, um, even, for example, this is another finding, but across provinces and territories, we don't actually see um, that stark a difference between between each province or territory in terms of um, you know the portion of their workers that are projected to grow that are in occupations projected to grow or decline. Um, but we see pretty stark differences within those regions. So you know Toronto is obviously very different from Windsor. Um, we see the same regionality in places like Newfoundland and places like Alberta. So it, it it's not only about regionality. It's not only about demographics. Um, it is really about how flexible we need to be in in preparing our workforce and in providing room for potential different needs. Um, and and this is something that we're exploring in other projects as well. Um, but I guess in in a one sentence answer, um, one size fits all is it. it, it None of our insights um, would back up that a one size one one size fits all approach um, would work. Really, um, another thing that comes to mind is uh, you know we we throughout we were very aware of um, you know as as Josh mentioned the problematic uh, data with. Um, that we saw in 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 the indigenous for indigenous peoples, um, and how you know the representation is not there uh, in the census at, to the same level as it is for uh, for other Canadians. So really investing in indigenous led initiatives that um, kind of transfer that leadership and enable indigenous communities to determine and respond to their labor market change um, is something that that will be really key. And 
And I think lastly is trying to infuse a sense of urgency. Um, we are seeing these changes now. Uh, a lot of the demographic changes uh, of the demographic stats that we are sharing, as I mentioned, they are happening now. So whether, you know, no projections are perfect, and we absolutely uh, recognize that. Um, we develop these as kind of a complementary picture to other projection systems in the country. Um, the one COPS from ESDCs um, specifically, um, and 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 we provide some some comparison there. But it, what what we what we really want to highlight is that these demographic differences are things that we are seeing now. We act, or really that we saw four years ago. They are from the 2016 census. They are not. Um, they are not projections. Um, they are closer to observations within the context of, of our study and what we develop. So really what acting on these insights now um, is what's going to be most helpful in steering us towards the future um, that we want to achieve and laying that grand work now. It's not it, it's not a wait and see approach. Um, and and I think I think that that's only been exacerbated by by the current pandemic. Absolutely. And it's interesting because when I look at the work that is happening within a private organization, this idea of personalization of learning and the urgency to reskills is on every chief learner's official, uh, chief learning officer agenda. It's clearly everywhere. And I, you know, I see that in my work and, and talking with a lot of folks, but it doesn't necessarily have permeated the, the, the public discourse where we know change are coming, but we haven't seen the same mobilization that, that we see in a lot of organizations, especially in the financial sectors who were among the first one in technology and services where internal policies around upskilling, uh, management techniques and leadership styles have been changed so that people develop a personal sense of urgency. And now the learning technology is evolving you know, through AI and analytics and so on so that the right content can actually find the learner, right? rather than the other way around, or that you have very personalized development path that help you go in the direction that would be useful to the organization, the industry, the marketplace, and uh, and so on. So anyway, just an observation of, on the maybe the gap between the public and private uh, discourse. Absolutely. That's interesting. Interesting. And, um, and just kind of on that thought, uh, personally, I think it, it is, it's great that, you know, individual workers and individuals and all of us are, are really getting behind that um, that notion of continuous learning and urgency and continuous development uh, and uh, personally I really think it's it's so important that organizations hold up on that onus right um, so as, as you were saying the learning finding the learner um, organizations taking that first step whether they're private or public to support their workers and support the workers in their community, because just just in terms of information, organizations will have much more information about you know what they need and what might be needed in the community um, than than any individual worker. So I think I think what you're saying is absolutely key. Just everyone kind of getting on the same page of how necessary this is becoming um, and how we are already seeing some of the effects of these trends, and also everyone sharing on that onus from the organizational level. Um, of taking responsibility for preparing for that change. 
Uh, by my last question for both of you, so Diana, Joshua, what was the most surprising finding for you in the research, or the one that that changed your way of uh, seeing things? Mm -hmm. Josh, do you want to go first? I feel like you have one. Sure. Uh, for me, it really was the memorization, actually. Uh, I had to do a lot of kind of, I, I came around to it um, and and had to did a lot of kind of my own thinking and research. My, my mother is in, um, has been an educator for 30 something years, just recently retired. So I ended up having lots of conversations with her and some of her colleagues at OISE about it. Um, uh, but I think that that to me was was the one that that really stood out uh, because like I, I grew up going to like alternative schools in Toronto where the whole thing was that learning is self-directed. It's all about creativity. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it was kind of interesting seeing this this result that that stood out from that a little bit. I would say the other one was um You'll notice in our in our model that const many construction jobs get a, a decreased projection, um, which you know you would think wouldn't be true. But when you kind of step back and think about what the model is actually doing, I thought it was a really good result in showing that you know. So forecasting is always going to be somewhat problematic, um, whether you're us doing kind of this novel approach or whether you're the Canadian government doing their. Uh, Canada, uh, the Canadian occupational projection system, um, which is kind of a more standard macroeconomic approach. Uh, our model only looks at the skills required for an occupation. So knows nothing about kind of these macroeconomic trends, you know, the fact that uh, most cities are, are building constantly, right? It, it doesn't know that. It just knows the skills required for an occupation and tries to say, well, based on these other occupations, I know what experts have said, um, this occupation looks similar. And so I think there's a really interesting takeaway there of, of what those jobs look like, that the model thought that even though we know these other macroeconomic trends that might say otherwise. So those, those would be my two. Fantastic. What about you, Diana? Anything that stood up? So many things stood out. Um, I, so I think the, I think the result that, I, I wouldn't call it unexpected, but the results that I was most interested in were the demographic results. Um, I think, you know, as, um, as a first-generation immigrant, as a woman, as someone who studies policy, um, really getting into uh, the some of the more specifics of, of how this looks different um, for different people was really important. Uh, but in terms of uh, the more surprising or interesting finding, I think it, it's it's related to um, how we how this set of projections that we created compares to the to the Canadian government's um, set of projections. So um, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit nerdy, but I like that we disagreed so much, um, and that that disagreement came from our experts. So you know, what we have a little table in our report um, where we look at how um, the different models from you know COBS or our model ranked different um, occupational groupings, and some of them are quite different. Uh, you know, in the arts, in in research extraction, for example. Um, but when you look at the source, at where we got those um, those numbers, our experts also disagreed with the with um, with the projections. They saw them from the beginning, and it was a very intentional decision to disagree at a certain projection. 
um, with with the official um, with the official numbers. So I thought that really captured the opportunity of projects like this to provide a completely different picture and provide us provide some space for um, for us to really look at disruption. Um, provide some space a little bit outside of um, traditional forecasting, which of course has its uh, pitfalls, as Josh mentioned. We we didn't include macroeconomic factors, um, and that obviously affects how what we can learn from it. Um, but it also gives us so many other things that we can learn from it, um, from people that are kind of on the ground and seeing these trends and seeing these disruptions day to day, um, and how they thought that might. Um, that might play out. So I, I think that in even that initial rate of disagreement, um, I really, I found really interesting. Well, it's going to certainly breed uh, more dialogues or more opportunity for further research. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that really is kind of the point of it all. Awesome. Well, Diana, Joshua, thank you so much for spending the time with us uh, today. I hope you uh, enjoyed uh, sharing your learning with our listeners. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. This was Abrupt Future. I hope you learned something valuable. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and any feedback or rating is greatly appreciated. On LinkedIn and in real life, my name is Benoit Hardy Valley and I thank you for your time.